Welcome to a special edition of BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Steve Osden, Washington Editor. Iman Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Selena Koch, Executive Editor. Today, we'll discuss where things stand with the Inflation Reduction Act and how it is affecting biopharma companies. The IRA has profoundly altered the economics of drug development since President Joe Biden signed it into law this summer. Shortly after President Biden signed it into law, we spoke with Eli Lilly CEO David Ricks, who told us that the law would have the value of most small molecule therapies and create economic incentives not aligned with science or the needs of patients. Steve, you've spent the past six months speaking to investors, pharma CEOs, consultants, attorneys, and former senior government officials about the IRA. I want to bring you in here to tell our listeners why every biopharma company out there needs to have an IRA strategy. Basically, because it's going to change the economics of drug development. All the big pharmas and investors are evaluating the law and making capital allocation, pipeline prioritization, business development decisions based on it. And so every company, no matter how big or small or where they're located, because every company basically in this universe is going to want to sell drugs into the U.S. market, has to understand the IRA and has to have a strategy for it. That's great, Steve, because I have talked to some companies who are developing next generation new modalities that I think they believe are not so affected by this law. And a lot of their perspective is, I don't really need to know this. This is just for the big farmers. It's not my problem. So tell us to the extent, even beyond partnering, what, what's going to happen to small biotechs and why they need to care? Well, they need to care regardless of the modality. Uh, because there's going to be price setting by Medicare after nine years for small molecules, but it's going to happen after 13 years for large molecules. There's also, and we can get into this later in the conversation, there's a whole redesign of the Medicare Part D benefit that's going to affect a lot of companies. I asked Peter Kolchinsky, the managing partner at RA Capital, what he thought about the idea that there are some companies that are so small or that they have products that aren't relevant, so they don't have to think about the IRA. He kind of exploded. And so that, that's an amazingly incompetent and um, dumb advice if anybody's telling anybody that. So he said, look, he said, all investment calculations are based on the concept of net present value of future profits. And the IRA is going to determine what those future profits are. So it's going to affect investment decisions. And um, his quote on this was, he said, nothing could be more wrong then the idea that a drug development company of any size or shape doesn't have to worry about the IRA. It would be like telling early stage companies not to worry about their launch prices or whether insurance will cover their products someday or even about FDA approval because that's all in some time in the future. And you're going to tell us, of course, that companies globally need to care about this because everybody markets their drugs here. Maybe just walk us through. I know we've done this before. I think it'll still be helpful to talk about some of the specifics. Some people call it price setting, some people call it negotiation. What is going to happen and what are the boundaries of what kind of changes in prices could come in? 
Okay, there's really no bound. There's no lower boundary on the prices that could come in. That's that's part of the problem. The law sets a ceiling, and it has a very complicated formula or algorithm that CMS can use to determine what the price that it starts to discount off of to determine that ceiling. And I actually don't think it's very important to go into that in depth because there's no reason for CMS to adhere to that ceiling. And then it sets a whole bunch of criteria for what it should take into account when determining what that price is going to be. The law doesn't tell CMS how to weigh these various things. So basically CMS acting for the HHS secretary who's going to make the ultimate decision can set the price wherever they want to and cite all of these various factors for it. I think what might be more interesting to talk about is what companies are saying that the IRA is going to make them do. What are the incentives from it? So the nine-year threshold for price setting is going to cut the valuation of small molecule drugs. That's what um, David Ricks, the CEO of uh, Lilly, told me. It's going to create incentives for investing in biologics because they have this 13-year runway. It's going to make it much more difficult to invest in new indications for approved drugs because if you've got a drug that's on the market and you know that the price for it is going to be set at a much lower rate nine years after launch, if you come up with a new indication five years after launch, it's going to be very challenging to earn the money back on that before you have the price set, right? It's also going to, to mean that all things being equal, companies are going to defer launches in the United States until they have the biggest indication ready so they can maximize the revenues before price setting starts. AstraZeneca told us that they're thinking about that. They're thinking about launching some drugs in Europe first, where they have smaller indications ready, and then waiting until they have bigger indications and then launching the United States, which makes sense from an, a financial perspective. But you know, it's pretty horrible for patients who could have benefited from those smaller indications in the United States. And then one more thing before I finish (laughs) with all this is that companies are going to have huge incentives to develop drugs for only a single orphan indication, because if they do that, then their drug is exempt from price setting forever. So if a company has an orphan drug, it's going to just stick with that first indication, with one indication. If it has the possibility of developing other orphan indications, it's very unlikely to do it because it doesn't want to lose that exemption. It's not a theoretical concern. Alnylam has said that they have a drug that's approved for one orphan indication, and they've said that they had plans to launch a phase three trial for another indication for Stargardt's, a form of progressive blindness, and they're not going to do it because they don't want to risk their single orphan exemption on that. Somebody from the Foundation for Preventing Blindness told me two days ago that they had a commitment from Alnylam to develop another molecule for Stargardt's. But that's going to take a long time. And people who have star guards are going to um, lose their vision. They're going to go blind while they're waiting for that to happen. And they're never going to get that site back. We did a scan of the horizon. and We found um, 18 different orphan drugs from 17 manufacturers that have already been approved that are in the clinic for a second or a third orphan indication. And my guess is that a lot of those indications are never going to get developed. Steve, just a quick follow-up to that. I know you don't speak for any of these companies, obviously, but some people might look at, for example, the Anne Nylum decision 
and say, well, they're putting profits over patients. How do you think the companies respond to that? You know, I talked to one CEO who didn't want to be named, and he said that the decisions that flow from the IRA about things like single orphan indications and also, by the way, it's going to lead to higher launch prices because companies are going to want to try to make up for some of the lost revenue. The way he put it, he said, it's just like water that is uh, you know, seeking its balance, that, that there are inevitable economic consequences from the policies that Congress has put in place. And the companies, especially public companies, really don't have a lot of choice about these things. I'm not sure if I buy it, but that's, that's what they say. Can we talk a little bit, Steve, about how this tendency to favor large indications is going to affect cancer drug development? In oncology, companies often start in these salvage lines, right? Patients have been through the entire pharmacopoeia. They have no more um, options left. And that's partly why companies start there, because if there was something proven effective they could be treated with, it would be more ethical to give them that thing. But you're saying it doesn't make economic sense for them to start in these smaller late line settings. So what's well, it, you know, you can exaggerate these things too. Of course, they're going to be, there's still going to be companies that are going to want to do that because that is the way that it makes sense to develop drugs. It may be that they defer applying for marketing some of those late line indications until they've got earlier line indications, but they're also operating in a competitive landscape. So they have to consider what other companies are doing and um, they may be, forced just by looking at the competitive landscape to go with some of these earlier indications. But it's certainly going to put a lot of stress on that model. I don't think we're going to see any more Keytrudas the way that Keytruda was developed for so many different indications over time. I think we're, we're much more likely to see narrower indications. It kind of sounds like companies might have to be spending more upfront. So if you can't have the same molecule, if it doesn't make sense to have the same molecule approved for two orphan diseases, you need to have your second molecule that's like it, but different going simultaneously. So you can have these two different drugs for the two different indications. And, and then in cancer, you might want to have these trials in these various lines happening almost simultaneously, if you can, in order to maximize profits. Yeah, it's going to be very difficult for that second scenario that you mentioned, because very often it's not ethical or you can't yeah. find um, right. physicians who would be willing um, to do that. But to the extent that they can do that, they certainly will do it. Some of the small biotech companies have told me that they think that all of this is going to create more leverage for the very big companies, the big biotechs and the big pharmas, because they'll have the resources to do launches much more quickly. And if you've got a, a limited period of time, especially for small molecules, nine, nine years, you want to get to peak sales as rapidly as you can. And that's something that the big companies are going to be much better equipped to do. Right. I was actually thinking that, you know, the large companies can afford to do, and the farmers, what you just said, Selena, and parallel track things. So I wonder whether it's going to impact the business model for smaller companies where they may unlicense a fairly advanced product, get it to market, and then use those sales to sort of fund the next things because it's going to change the whole funding dynamics for that lead molecule and maybe even influence the other indications that they pursue. I don't know if you have thoughts about that, Steve, but you could sort of see a ripple effect on business models throughout coming from this. You, you could, you know, but 
Um, and here's where it gets to be much more complex because you also have to consider the way that the IRA redesigned and revamped Medicare Part D. And we, we don't have the time to get into all of this. Alice uh, Walter Curran, an attorney at uh, Hogan Lovells, who spends a lot of time and brain power thinking about the IRA, she quoted Spinal Tap in my story. And she said, well, this all, it brings it to 11 in terms of complexity. But some of the things that they have to think about, okay, well, first with the IRA, companies that meet certain criteria for being small biotechs are exempt from the price setting for the first two years, right? And then for this redesign of Medicare Part D, which increases the manufacturer liability for very expensive drugs, some small companies are able to phase that in over a long period of time. So that's a tremendously valuable benefit from them. On the other hand, that benefit disappears if the company is acquired by a large company or becomes a subsidiary of a large company. So the value of their drug could go down instantly if they're acquired. There are a lot of other complexities to the Medicare Part D design, and there, there are mitigating things that might mitigate some of the constraints that are going to come as a result of the price setting. For example, there's a $2,000 a year cap on the out-of-pocket expenses uh, for Medicare beneficiaries, and Medicare beneficiaries can spread that out over a calendar year. That's going to be a big advantage, especially for very expensive drugs. It means that patients who might have left a drug at the pharmacy counter because they couldn't afford the copay are going to pick it up and use it. So there's going to be a lot more adherence on some of these drugs. The uh, Medicare Part D design also makes adult vaccines essentially free and creates requirements for Part D plans to cover them. So this is going to be very good news, I think, for manufacturers of vaccines that are used by adults. For example, the shingles vaccine from GSK. Steve, so what you said brings me to another topic. So the out-of-pocket costs and spreading it over a year is something that I believe broadly drug manufacturers were delighted with or, you know, were endorsed. And I think there were parts of the IRA that maybe for the first time, people in the industry weren't saying don't do anything on drug pricing. They were saying, give us more than nine years for small molecules. They were sort of negotiating the terms rather than the whole fact of it. As you look at this, what are the next sort of, or the first maybe shoes to drop? You talked about not knowing, we don't know how low they're going to go. When will we start to get a readout on that? And what do you expect to be the parts of the law that the industry will go back and try to get fixed if there are any openings to do that? Well, okay, so I'll take the second part first. Well, look, there's an effort that Republicans have announced to um, replace and repeal the IRA, the whole bill, or other parts of it that affect the biopharmaceutical industry, price setting especially, that's not going to happen. It's certainly not going to happen as long as Democrats control either House of Congress or the White House. I also think it's going to be a real uphill battle to get any kind of substantial or really major um, changes of the law in the next two years, in the next Congress, when we've got Democrats controlling the Senate, you've got Joe Biden in the White House, we're, we're really not going to see any major changes of the IRA's drug price setting provisions. 
advocates for orphan drug groups, the Every Life Foundation and some others, are trying to get the single orphan designation or limitation modified, for example, to allow drugs that only have orphan indications, no matter how many, to be exempt from price negotiation. They may be able to get some traction in Congress for that, but I think that it will take some time. It's certainly not going to happen quickly. As for the prices, we've got a, a handy-dandy um, timeline that's, <laughs> that's in the story that we've published about all of this. So the timeline's complex for the price setting, but the first 10 Part D drugs that are going to be subject to price setting or price negotiation, if you want to call it that, will be announced next September. And the actual prices for those drugs will be announced in 2024. Those drug prices will go into effect in 2026. Every year, there are going to be more drugs selected. There's going to be 15 more drugs selected in 2025. And those prices are going to be announced at the end of that year, and they're going to go into effect in 2026. Starting in 2026, there's going to be another 15 drugs that are going to be announced in that year. It's also going to include Part B drugs as well as Part D drugs. Every year, more and more drugs are going to get announced, and they're going to get added to it until we're going to get to a situation by 2029, 2030, where virtually every drug that has over $200 million a year in 2021 prices adjusted for inflation are going to be subject to price setting um, drugs that are marketed under NDAs nine years after they're launched or approved and um, biologics um, 13 years after they're approved. Given the massive implications of this and its complexity, we'll be covering it in depth for the foreseeable future, including this week. Steve is publishing a kind of mega story. Get your extra double quad espresso going and some time. This will be a big one. It also has some charts and graphics in it, including the details of the various pieces of the IRA and when each one goes into effect. That's coming. And we'll also have a webinar on this topic coming up in Q1 of next year. Do watch out for that. We'll certainly be sure to give advance notice. And as Selena says, dig into Steve's stories, get the espresso ready, or just head to your favorite coffee shop and uh, get the all-day pass. Important topic. Got to get our heads around it. Uh, Everyone in industry, as Steve says, no matter where you are in the world. All right. Simone, Steve, Selena, thanks for the deep dive here. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. Thanks for tuning in.